The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarren.com slash rain. You know, these two teams over 70, 75 years go through cultural waves. Both of them go through cultural waves. I have no doubt about that. And when we started interacting with the Blues in the America Strong campaign and bringing the teams closer together, what we learned is they were actually at a cultural high point and their demo was extremely precise. And so we relearned a lot of the things that the Thunderbirds used to do. If you go back to the 90s and 80s, flying the exact same jet, by the way, uh, we relearned a lot of that stuff from the Blue Angels. Went to 01B5, the restricted 6002 is still active. targeted. And we're live. Welcome to the show. Today's pretty special. I've got a buddy of mine, uh, Rain Waters from the Afterburn podcast, to co host this episode because there's so much star power. I just couldn't pull it off myself. <laughs> uh, and if you're listening to the merge, that's me. Uh, we make sense of defense in an enjoyable way. If you're listening to this on the Afterburn pod with Rain, they're bringing people together through their stories. So welcome, Rain. Thanks for having me, Paco. This is fun. This is uh, a lot in the making to come together, but I'm pretty excited about today. This was, uh, this was a challenge logistically, technologically, was there some uh, <laughs> <laughs> late breaking tech issues, <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> but we're here. We, uh, we pulled off the miracle and, uh, and I don't know if, if the technology can handle the star power we're going to have today, but all right, let's do this. So on to the guests today, we have not one special guest, but two special guests, both friends of mine. First up, we have Lieutenant Colonel Justin Astro Elliott. He is the commander of the United States Air Force Air Demonstration Squadron. That's the official name. Everyone just calls them the Thunderbirds. Welcome, Astro. Thanks, Bago. Good to be here. Thanks, Rain. Absolutely. If you're watching this on YouTube, you're probably wondering why there's a Blue Angels painting behind the Thunderbirds commander's uh, shoulder in his office. Because sitting next to you, Thunderbird One, is our second special guest, which is Commander John Fizzle Fay, the executive officer of the Navy Flight Demonstration Squadron, also known as the Blue Angels. Welcome, Fizzle. Baco, thanks for having me, Rain. Thanks for being here. And, uh, and boss Astro as well. I'm uh, glad to be here. Heads up for, for you listeners. This is probably not going to be the interview you think it's going to be. Uh, we'll talk about flying. We'll talk about some stuff, but this will be the interview that you need to hear. We're actually going to go behind the scenes with the teams, talk about the leaderships and all the things that you actually don't see at the air shows that actually makes these teams the high performing teams that they are. So it's not the flying that makes them good. It's the leadership. Spoiler alert. Uh, all right. So to get us started, they're actually both sitting in the same room. So we'll talk about that in just a second. But I got a couple icebreakers. Uh, I'm going to put you guys in the spot. Astro, you know a ton about the Thunderbirds. So I'm going to ask you a trivia question about the Blue Angels. Nice. Ah. <laughs> so, so Astro, when were the Blue Angels founded? 1946. Wow. That's right. That's right. All right. We're going to flip the script. Fizzle. You know, when the Thunderbirds were founded. Uh, well, this is their 70th year, so uh, you're throwing me for a, uh, a loop. Do, I'm not going to do public math on that, but I would say that would be, goodness, 1953. Yes. Ding, 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 ding. You're correct. The next question's for both of you. Between the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels, what jets did both teams fly? Ooh, like back in the day. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, we started with the F-84G on the Thunderbirds. Yeah, no, but which, like commonly, which, which, there's one oh. aircraft, both teams oh, actually yeah, flew. F-4, F-4. F- yeah, you're right, the F-4, that's right. It's the only aircraft both teams that flew. The F-4E for the Air Force and the F-4J for the Navy. That is correct. Okay, next question. Astro, why is the F-18 ENF, aka the Super Hornet, why is it referred to as the Rhino? Ooh, that's a good one. I actually don't know that answer. I have. Full I will. Of- I will let you phone a friend. All right. This, <laughs> why Fizzle. is the F eighteen E referred to as the Rio? <laughs> well, uh, you know, you got me, and I and I'll probably take some grief on that. Uh, I believe it was a carryover from the F four, if I'm not mistaken. But you know, as a non Rhino Bubba, I'd have to phone in a friend as well. I only know the answer to this because I asked when I actually got to fly in a Super Hornet on the boat is hornets and rhinos i'm like well why do you keep calling it a rhino like oh well you have to call in when you call in for your uh you know cats and traps they adjust it for weights and the super hornet's way bigger and way heavier than the hornet so it's 20 percent more at takeoff 30 percent more at landing something like that and so if you clip a radio call for hornet and super hornet like you could mess those settings up and that would be like disastrous so they just have a different name so they use rhino for it that's that's what they use in the radio so there you go Uh, Fizzle, why is the F-16 called the Viper and not referred to by its official name, the Fighting Falcon? Uh, that's another great question. I, I think I'm good on this phone a friend, though. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, this one, I actually, um, I, I have heard rumors about why we started calling it the Viper about the time that Lockheed took over from uh from general dynamics but i actually don't know if that rumor is true you know i know it used to be the fighting falcon and then it became the viper all of a sudden and people affectionately refer to it as the viper and i imagine it's in that contractor transition but i'm not sure i'll give astro uh, a way out here because you know he flies the f-16 on the thunderbirds but he's flown like 40 different aircraft test pilot strike eagle background by trade so i'll give him the easy out but we do have a hardcore viper guy on the line here with rain so rain you want to take this one man i got thrown into this i thought i was gonna dodge all these questions it's like man <laughs> fence in here we go but battlestar galactic i've never i never saw it but i guess it mimics and looks very similar to a viper in that and again i kind of like lean on astro like that's not written in stone anywhere, nor etched, you know, somewhere on a wall saying this is why, but that is the rumor I've always heard. And I'd be curious, like Astro, with you out on the show circuit, I always had people correcting me and the team correct me out in the air show world saying it's the Fighting Falcon, it's not the Viper. But for the Viper, it's F-16 Viper demo team. It right. says Viper uh, in the script, although we did mention that the Fighting Falcon, so... Be curious if you if you hear that a bunch out there, but it's the Viper. Anyone who's flown it or worked on it, it's the Viper. Exactly the same, Rain. We uh, our script officially says F sixteen Fighting Falcon when we list all the jets that we've flown throughout history, but everybody calls it the Viper. And, and you know, interesting connection. But those are good questions, Paco, because I'm like you know was living the F thirty five transition of nomenclature last year, um, and really as the as the six weapon school stood up and the four two two and fifty nine started flying F thirty fives in mass. I can tell you, it's probably never going to be written down because the F-35 has a lot of names right now, Panther, Bolt, uh, anything but Lightning. And <laughs> I don't necessarily know where they came from already in, at the inception. And I bet no one's ever going to once it settles in. 
Yeah, it's like the F-15 EX. Officially, it's it's called the Eagle II. Terrible name, by the way. Yeah. Uh, unofficially and internally, everyone just calls it the Phoenix. Yeah. So we'll see what happens with that yeah. as we start fielding them. Before we just back out of this rabbit hole, I would like to mention, too, <laughs> the uh, the Warthog. Right. The Hawk. Yeah, that's another one. Thunderbolt two, but they no one ever brings that up. No one ever says it's the Thunderbolt two. They always say it's the Warthog. That's so, right. So for some reason, the Viper and the Fighting Falcon, that one sticks, and that's a that's a touchy subject for a lot of people out there. Rain, to your point, uh, I did look it up. I did do the research. It is very closely connected to the show Battlestar Galactica. There is a no kidding, a space superiority starfighter called the Colonial Viper on the show. And if you Google a picture, we'll put a picture in the show for those on YouTube. It looks like a Viper, like an F-16. Uh, It has the bubble canopy and the way that the the wings, the tail, like it looks like someone took a F-16 and adapted it to go be a space superiority fighter. Okay. Two last questions. Who has the bigger patch? (laughs) You got us. I think the Thunderbirds might, I think the Thunderbirds might have the bigger patch, but they they have a significantly larger name tag though. They do. Yeah. So I think it's, yeah, I think the real estate wise, it evens out. I think the Air Force wins on the bigger patch uh, war and then the Navy <laughs> wins on the bigger name war. So and then if you had to tie break it, um, Fizzle's flag is at least 1.6 times the size of, of my. <laughs> Let me go. The war of escalation over time between the two teams uniforms. Uh, but I think the Navy actually won that with the tighter uniform. <laughs> so the, I think the Navy has slightly tighter uniforms than the Air Force. I'd say it a lot because the Air Force has some pretty tight uniforms for the Thunderbirds. Oh, you're talking about our our uniform, the tighter. Yeah. Uniform. Oh yeah, we uh yeah I might pass out at about 20 minutes in on the very good one. It's actually uh, Paco as usual. It's a policy difference. So the Thunderbirds are uh, are allowed to unzip to the bottom of the one but the Blue Angels are not allowed to unzip when in public view, so they are full, full tight. We're going to keep it professional, Jim. <laughs> That's right. This is a place of business. That's right. Well, you don't have a, you don't have a G-suit, you know, so you got to make up the difference there with keeping right. that thing nice and yeah, snug. It effectively functions as a G-suit. So I mean, it gives think- you an extra G and a half just from the tailor, so. Unsuit. That's exactly right. <laughs> so before we, uh, we jump into it, can you just tell everyone, why are you guys sitting in the same room the casual listener might be like, well, they're different services. They have different aircraft. They are on the air show circuit, but they do different air shows. You hardly ever see them together. Clearly, they don't talk to each other. Why are you guys sitting in the same room right now? I'll start and then Fizzle. I, I think you're probably good to deep dive on the background because Fizzle was actually here when this started. The two teams got very close during the American Strong campaign back when the pandemic shut down our seasons and we ended up flying over hospitals and cities instead. That was the beginning of a relationship that was frankly long overdue between the two teams. So we are in El Centro, California, where the Blue Angels train uh, for their three months of winter training um, every year. The Thunderbirds, starting in my first year in 2022, brought on a training syllabus that involved multiple deployments. So instead of staying at Nellis Air Force Base and anchoring for the entirety of training season and pushing all the risk of travel and logistics and everything that goes on in show season all the way to the right to March, we decided that we were going to move every two weeks to a different location. And the culmination of that of that movement phase is right here with our brothers and sisters in the Blue Angels. So we're here for eight days. Training alternating goes with the Blues. So they fly first go, then we fly second go, they fly third go, we fly fourth go. And sometimes they even fly a fifth go afterwards and, and wrap it all up. Share lessons learned, fly together, learn from each other, 
and uh, build a better team for the Department of Defense in the United States. Awesome. And you guys have a, you have a tradition now where you have kind of like a joint dinner, right? We, we, we have dinner. We, we do. We, Navy League uh, has been hosting a dinner here. Uh, it's it's an opportunity for us to, uh, for both teams to kind of get like a commit atmosphere. Uh, Boss Astro, I, th- I think y'all probably did some stuff like that. But for us, it was a, uh, an opportunity for uh, for the officers, at least our officer wardrobe to get out there, go through the, the boss commit speech, and then team introductions to kind of inform the public on what we do. Because public outreach, let's face it, that's 50% of our mission right there. Um, so it's a great opportunity for both teams to do that. I would I would just simply say that this, uh, the joint interoperability, this is our fourth year of, of doing it. It's iron sharpens iron. You know, uh, we are one team, one fight in this whole thing. Uh, you know, ne- neither of us are deliberately coming out saying that we're recruiting from one service to the other. We're both in it to say, hey, go out and be a better version of yourself. Inspire the, the next, you know, generation behind us and, and kind of showcase this culture of excellence that I think both teams exhibit. It is a sibling rivalry uh, as someone who has siblings. Uh, but that also means that we're family. And I think the last four years have really uh, emphasized that be- between both teams and we're better for it. Was there anything that changed in the way that you fly or operate that you learn from the other team? They say, hey, that's a better way of doing it. Let's tweak here or there. Was there anything that came out of this process? Oh boy, did it ever. Um, Rain, how, uh, how, how far do you want me to go with this? I yeah. can talk for five straight minutes on that question alone. Well, I think it's good. I mean, because it's one thing if, if you're the the premier demonstration team, right? Yeah. And you're you're operating at that level, it is tough. I think for a lot of people sometimes, like I don't need to learn anything else. But that's the thing at fighter pilots, right? Like you're always striving to be better. And I think the humility part is a key piece, but not an easy thing to do when again you're wearing a blue flight suit and you guys have been it, right? Like don't need to take anything from anyone else. So I, I think people would be interested to hear just the fact of. Yeah, what influence one another? Okay, well, it was a lot. I'm gonna I'm gonna take you guys on a bit of a historic journey here through the Thunderbirds, um, and then we can go a lot deeper on this as uh, as we get into the podcast. But just to kind of give you a big picture overview of where we were at before this interaction started between the Blues and the Thunderbirds, Thunderbirds were in a pretty tough period in history. You go back to just prior to the pandemic, back to 2018, 2019 timeframe. And look at a snapshot in Thunderbird history. Here's what you see. You had a fatal accident that killed Cajun. You had three Class A mishaps within a very short period of time. You had a commander leader fired. And you had a demonstration that was poor enough, frankly, that um, to this day, we're trying to get rid of some of the pictures on Google of our diamond pass and review, which was supposed to be our elite formation maneuver that demonstrates the uh, ultimate precision flying that the U.S. Air Force is capable of. And um, Paco and Rain, I'll send you that photo just so you've got it because I think it's worth showing people that sometimes it's difficult to see culture drift in an organization and sometimes it is not. Sometimes it's right there uh, visibly right in front of you. The way things were being flown were um, just incorrect. And, you know, it had drifted to a point culturally where the Thunderbirds had uh, anchored on the, hey, we make a lot of noise we bring a lot of thrust and umph and, and scare the crowd. And that's our demonstration. And you know what? It doesn't matter that much anyway, because people have a hard time telling the difference in precision and non-precision. And it's really about the outreach and the 
you know, get, getting that good social media presence out there. That had, that had drifted. That was a prevailing thought process uh, on the team if you go back just a few short years. There's a whole deeper history on how we got there, and I'm happy to talk about it uh, as we dive in. But what I'll, what I'll get at to answer your question directly is for the Blues, you know, th- these two teams over 70, 75 years go through cultural waves. Both of them go through cultural waves. I have no doubt about that. And when we started interacting with the Blues in the America Strong campaign and bringing the teams closer together, what we learned is they were actually at a cultural high point and their demo was extremely precise. And so we relearned a lot of the things that the Thunderbirds used to do. If you go back to the 90s and 80s, flying the exact same jet, by the way, um, we relearned a lot of that stuff from the Blue Angels. And it was kind of a, a confirmation that some of the things the alumni were telling us to tighten back down on in fact, we're still possible. And we learned that from interactions with these guys and learning how to fly the diamond pass and review again, uh, the way it should be flown, for example. And then that rippled into a whole lot of other stuff. So enormous changes from the interaction. You know, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up about the cultural waves. There's highs and lows. And so if you go back to like why the Air Force started flying the F-16, uh, there's a whole history behind that. So it, the Thunderbirds took the F-16 over in 83 but from about 1974 to 1983 they were actually flying the t-38 a trainer that's correct and so they they shifted away from flying combat aircraft to trainer aircraft for a few reasons one of them uh the economics of fuel during the oil crisis but that itself started creating this cultural problem that had manifested over years and years and years and the Thunderbirds killed five pilots within like a one-year time frame. Uh, one of them was a was a tragic mishap where four died in one one event, and then the uh, the commander of the Thunderbird crashed and uh, and he died. So they canceled the season, they canceled everything, and they kind of rebuilt the Thunderbirds culturally, technologically. They shifted to the F-16, and Ash, this is your baby. You're you probably tell a story better than me, but what you just said reminds me a lot of how like those people 30 years ago. Yep had some of the same challenges and and how they kind of went through to like rebuild what peak performance looks like in a high performing team. So do you guys see any parallels from kind of 30 years ago from then and now? Oh yeah. Um, in so many ways, um, you know, that diamond crash in, in 82, that was a fundamental moment on, in this team's history. I'm going to zoom out just a little bit. Um, if you look at the total lifetime accident history of the Thunderbirds. Um, it is about a 10% loss rate for the pilots on the team. Um, you look at the accident history of the Blue Angels, it's almost exactly the same. Same thing with major accidents, Class A mishaps, approximately 25% of Thunderbird and Blue Angel pilots um, have been in a Class A mishap. It's just uh, it's just that difficult. Um there are no buffers on these demonstrations. They really are that close. They really are that low to the ground. Um, and, and they really are that dependent on the blind trust between formation members. Um, that, you know, that's, that's just an interesting kind of macro view. Now, you asked about parallels between the T-38 era, um, in, you know, into the early eighties and today, there are a lot. Um, in fact, if you go back, let's, let's zoom way, way, way out. There's a, speech that President Carter gave um, in 1979 called The Crisis of Confidence. If anyone has not heard it or read it or listened to it, I'd encourage you to look it up because it is absolutely fascinating. Um, You talk about cycles and cultural history. 
listen to some of these things that that he talked about. Um, you had just come out of a failed war uh, in Vietnam. You had a 10 foot tall giant adversary that the United States just didn't think it could compete with. It was the USSR. You had spiraling inflation. You had a reinvigoration of self-promotion and self-interest in American culture. And Carter talks about that in 1979. He talks about self-indulgence, self-promotion. Um, does that sound familiar to anybody? Yeah, we look at, <laughs> look at today, we just came out of Afghanistan. We've got a 10 foot tall giant adversary in China that, uh, that we think is amazing. We've got spiraling inflation and we've got a reinvigoration of self-promotion. And so these, these cultural waves, I, when you look back at that diamond crash and what the team had to do to rebuild from that diamond crash, that low point, we'll call it in history. I think it's a direct parallel to what the team had to do starting really about three years ago. Um, in the pandemic era and uh, that pandemic era allowed us to start that control, delete and cultural reset that um, it, it is working. And I'll send you another picture of our of that same maneuver um, so you can show both uh, the 2022 Diamond Pass and Review versus the one that's been online for about the last two decades. Pulling the thread on that is for the listeners, you might be wondering if you micro nap through the intro where we ask the guests to tell them about themselves. Uh, that's not a mistake. Astro and Fizzle both individually said, hey, it's not about us. It's about the team. It's about the message. So like, we're just, it's not about us. So we were happy to, I know of Astro, we go back about 15 years. Fizzle and I worked in the Pentagon together. Uh, so we have scar tissue trying to work with Congress <laughs> for, for quite a few years. Right. Um, so, and we all have a relationship between the four of us on, on this uh, on this episode, but it's not about them. It's about the message and about the team. And so they had purposely said like, hey, don't make it about us. Switching gears over to Fizzle, for Air Force listeners, he is the executive officer, which is like the number two person in a squadron, but it's not the same, it's this different dynamic. And so if, if you go to the Air Force squadron, the number two person in the Air, Air Force squadron is the director of operations. The name is different, but the role is different too. And so as the executive officer, Fizzle, tell us a little bit about what makes your job way different than what people might assume when they see you and they see wings, they see you in a Blue Angels uniform. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks, Paco. And you're right. We do have a lot of scar tissue. I think our time together on the Hill was a, a combat tour. I'm still waiting for that combat pay. I never got that <laughs> flat jacket issued. I could use it many times. But uh, looking back on it, I'm, I'm appreciative for those uh, moments and the lessons learned. You're right. As the executive officer, so Boss Astro and I actually were just kind of talking about some of the differences between the two two teams. And it's probably more indicative of the differences between the two services. But uh, most Navy squadrons, the executive officer will end up fleeting up to become uh, the commanding officer. Blue Angels are a little different. Uh, we take a post-command commander that comes in as our flight leader and commanding officer, also known as the boss. And so uh, to help balance all those duties, because flying just occupies a significant amount of time here and we're on the road upwards of 300 days a year uh, they determined that it would be best to have someone that could kind of help run the run the squadron on the ground and that's kind of what i end up doing is i you know i get to kind of help direct the efforts of the overall squadron 143 people that's 122 enlisted 16 officers and five civilians uh, that support our efforts day in and day out and, you know, just the same way that the boss is the one looking forward in a flight demonstration and he's got wingmen to the left and right and behind him, uh, I get to kind of do the same thing, just sort of lead the team 
on the ground. The difference is that, you know, Blue Angels, you really don't have to lead them. I get to kind of just help point them, vector them in the right direction because there's so much thrust there. It's pretty amazing. It's an amazing team to work with, and I just feel blessed to do it uh, for this short, you know, short time in my career. But uh, but you're right. I think I'd, I'd, I'd be uh, incorrect to, to not give credit that it is a total team effort, and, you know, I'm, I'm blessed to be able to just sort of help kind of point us in that direction. Yeah, Astro, you and you and I have talked a little bit about that. Of you're you're leading the uh, the three ring circus, but you're also like like literally leading the the flights as well. I can't remember the numbers, but you told me how much you fly, and I want to say it was like double of what a like ops squadron fighter pilot flies in a month. I actually think it's quite a bit more than that, and that was the shock to me um, joining the team. Is I was busy enough as a squadron commander um, when I was in command of the 59th. That was busy, and, and Back then, I probably flew four to five sorties a month just to stay current in the F-35. And you take over the Thunderbirds and you have a command job that, just like Fizzle described, 135 people, enormous logistics challenges, pretty busy command job. And on top of that, I fly 12 sorties a week, uh, so 48 sorties a month, and I'm the flight lead on every single one of them. And um, I cannot tell you how difficult this demonstration is to fly. You know, I've flown experimental test aircraft. I've flown through weapons school. Um, I've done most of the things that are considered very challenging in the Air Force. And leading this demonstration is, uh, it takes 95% of my brain capacity every single time. And this is after doing it hundreds of times. It just makes it busy. And right back to what Fizzle just described, blind trust is our motto for a reason. You are completely reliant on, on your team to execute that logistics flow, that maintenance mission, uh, everything that has to be done to make sure that demo is possible on the ground. You know, if you, tr- if you try to micromanage that as Thunderbird 1, it is not possible. So the trust in your people is, it's required. And uh, I've been rewarded by, by, by Lips just letting them run. I think, nice. boss, I think y'all are probably the same, but we, you know, we always say our, our demonstration is founded on teamwork and trust. And those are the two principles that, you know, are kind of the glue uh, between keeping the thing together. And you're absolutely right. You have a, you have a whole squadron of people that are doers that are at yes. You know, they're already at yes and they're moving forward safely. You know, we're doing a very dangerous mission as safely as we can. Yep. Fizzle, you, you have a LinkedIn profile and I want to say you have a saying that's on your profile and it's, and you had a post about it about a month or two ago and it's, I, I don't, you tell me what the saying was and, and how you use it. I think that's sure. it pretty insightful. It's, it's glad to be here. Uh, it's, uh, nothing that I created. I, I want to say it dates back to our team in the eighties, uh, eighties or possibly nineties. Um, but it, it ultimately is just a, a statement of gratitude, a statement of not only the position that you occupy, but everything that got you to that point, the goods, you know, the bads and the others, because that all kind of formed into what you are. And, and it's just about recognizing incredibly, you know, important and humbling position that we have at this point in time and going forward. Um, so we, at the end of every, uh, every, in our debrief, we say, glad to be here, you know, boss, I'm glad to be here. And that's kind of our, uh, our, our affirming statement to one another that we, we recognize it's, it's part of that culture of caring and culture of excellence that we, we all try and exhibit. I interviewed a former Blue Angel uh, not too long ago because when I did the air shows, I was typically paired up the Blues, right? So I got to yeah. travel around a bunch. But we were down in Vero Beach and he smacked a bird 
doing about 600 knots. There was an epic flame that someone captured coming out of the, his motor. And the show went on. But to speak to the excellence part and how precise and the team effort that went into it, he just makes his radio call that he has an issue that he's going to go below one of the other blues and land the jet and the thing keeps going on. But just how dynamic that performance is, the amount of moving pieces that are all going on in such a very small piece of sky is really impressive. And I know you didn't want to make it about you guys, but I think it's probably worth at least highlighting a little bit because if they haven't gathered at this point how difficult it is, like Astro, I think when you say, hey, this is really tough to do, just a little bit like your background in particular, being a weapons school graduate, a test pilot school graduate, like that's a pretty rare thing. So you're a graduated squadron commander, and I, I didn't know this until I started doing air shows. The Blues graduated squadron commander, and then usually during the show season, I saw two bosses pin on 06. Yes. Has the Thunderbirds normally done that, or is it usually that is stepping into a squadron command position, not having been a graduated squadron commander? Is that is that a change, or how does that work? It's a change, Rain. You, you nailed it. And that was, you know, to our question earlier about what we got out of the Blues, that was one of the things that Comac signed off on once he understood the importance of that. Because if you are walking into Thunderbird 1 as your very first command position, something's going to give. It's very unlikely that you're going to be able to perform as a squadron commander for the first time uh, and everything that that entails, as well as lead a demo 12 times a week. We don't have weekends. I think that's important to understand for folks. That moment of that you get, you know, after after a tough week of work, we don't have that. And, and so there's very little time to just sit down and catch up on your admin or, you know, whatever else you had to do, whether that be in your personal life or your professional life. And so there's very little time to just go, okay, how can I get ahead? It is, it is a, every day is a, is a pretty challenging day. Okay. I'm not kidding, Rain. You know, you hit on my background a little bit. Um, I'll use that to just say that this is definitely the hardest flying I've ever done and the most challenging day-to-day strategic thought that I've had to do as well. Uh, there's, there's a lot that goes on. You know, you think about the, here's the show season. You look at the calendar, like here's where it starts. Here's, here's the events. Here's where it ends. That's just one of your seasons. You don't have an off season. You have a show season and you have a training season and the training season is when you shuffle the manpower. So you, all the people move, some people move, some people, um, join the team. So there's a spin up, they move positions. And so maintaining that, that strong cohesion of a high performance team with that much turnover every 12 to 24 months is, I think it's something that doesn't get enough attention, but it's, you know, you look at the Thunderbirds, you see the aircraft, you see, or the Blue Angels, you see the aircraft, you see the people, and you assume that they're the same people from season to season, but they're not. I'll I'll take a stab at that if that's all right. Yeah. Go for it. First off, I'll, I'll say like any good brother, uh, if, if, you know, big air force, big Navy saw us, uh, with this setup, you know, coming into this, they'd, they'd remove those silver Oakleys from us. But if they got to meet boss Astro, no doubt they'd be putting a star or two on him. Cause he's, he's a solid guy. So we've, we've enjoyed <laughs> working together for sure. Um, yeah, people don't realize that, you know, a lot, a lot of times I think we go to Crowdline, we engage with the American public and, and they, a lot of times there's this perception that you join the military and you're a, you're a blue angel. 
uh, Russ Underberg, right? And it's, you know, couldn't be further from the truth. And I know both teams have worked hard to reconnect with, you know, what we call in the Navy, the fleet uh, for, for y'all, you know, your, your fighter force, right? Like showing people that, Hey, we come from flying gray jets and, and that's what we go back to after this tour. This is just a small moment in time that we get to go and highlight the, you know, all the men and women that are serving around the globe, doing all these great things that are out of, you know, out of eyesight. So there is that piece. I know for us, um, we are gone, uh, you know, 300 days. So it's busy and you, you have to learn that as a newbie coming in. One third of our team is new every year. One third of our enlisted force, a little over, uh, well, half of our flight demonstrations, so half of the Delta, three of our six pilots every year are new. And then just shy of half of our wardroom, our officer wardroom of 16 or 17 officers is new every year, uh, you know, is learning it for the first time. So it, it, to, to achieve that level of excellence, you know, we're always shooting for perfection, but you know, in the end we, we catch excellence, uh, to do that, you have to have, a, you know, a, I think, I think it speaks to just having standards, having, uh, this, again, this culture of caring and, and a culture of excellence. You're just always shooting for the best version. You're, you're hitting yourself, uh, on the most minute details. We always say there's no minutia in the blue angels and they're really in, cause there's no detail that should be overlooked. You know, it's something that we, we definitely carry over from the strike fighter community. Um, and we're, again, just trying to, to make the most perfect show, the most perfect, uh, execution possible in the end so that we make a meaningful impact. And to your point, when people go to an air show, there's lots of different demonstrations. You see, you see individual airplanes doing demonstrations, you see formations and teams doing demonstrations, but the, what sets the blue angels and the Thunderbirds apart, in my opinion, is that it's a team of people who rotate on a continual basis. Unlike, um, some of the other teams that you might see at an air show, they've been flying together for years and years and years. The Thunderbirds and Blue Angels don't do that. Every season, they're rotating people out of their team and they're able to execute on such a high level. I think it speaks a lot to, you know, what, what Fizzle was talking about, where you, you, know, you shoot for perfection and you'll, you'll achieve excellence. But I mean, Astro, you and I have talked a lot about just team dynamics. It's not just, hey, this is the precision flying example for, you know, in this case, the Air Force. The squadron itself is the other story. It is the example squadron yes. for the Air Force. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. Yes. Let me, let me paint that picture for, uh, for the listeners. So a lot of assumptions that I, that I even had as an Air Force fighter pilot, you know, growing up well into my Air Force career, in fact, I was surprised by how untrue they were. So let me give you a couple of those assumptions. So assumption one, the Thunderbirds is six pilots. Nope. It's 135 people. The assumption that I think a lot of people make when they see us in the crowd of, okay, this is the air show. You know, like this is our air show in Montana. So this must be what the Thunderbirds did this year. And then they train for the other, you know, 359 days a year that they weren't at this air show in Montana. You know, not true. We're, we're the only Thunderbirds in the United States. Every single show that we fly, um, every single weekend, sometimes with midweek shows, that's all one team, one set of people, one group of 135 people, officer enlisted that are doing all the travel across the country and, uh, and bringing it back home and rebuilding. The assumption of swap outs, absolutely. You hit on that. You know, everyone assumes that we're, that we've been the same team for 70 years. And, uh, and I guess you, you know, you get old and your tenure expires and somebody fills in the caps, but nope, it's every single year we swap out 50% of the flyers 
and one third of the enlisted exactly like Fizzle just talked about. And then where it gets really interesting is when you walk into the Thunderbirds hangar, you inevitably have a moment where you say, wow, I'm assuming this squadron is extremely well funded and has all the money and all the manpower and all the time because look at this hangar, right? It's, it's huge. It's red, white, and blue. It's clean. The floor's polished. It's got a big American flag in the background. This, this is where all our money's going. Not true. You know, that is the oldest hangar on Nellis Air Force Base. It was built in 1956. It was the first hangar on the base and it should be in shambles right now based on the average squadron infrastructure budget that we have in the Air Force. The reason it's not is because our entire team is committed to that culture of creating a beacon of excellence in the name of service to something bigger than ourselves. You know, one of our sayings is we expect to have an almost unbelievable attention to detail. And so when we patch in a new class, for example, whether whether you're officer or enlisted, whatever the case may be, when you're when you're trying to earn your patch for those first couple of weeks, you literally polish the brass in the hangar. You polish the patch in the middle of our hangar floor um, every single day. You polish the floor of the hangar every single week, and that goes on well past patch. This is it's just the expectation for the squadron to be at that level of precision and detail, and it's contagious. You know, when you when you set that as the bar, people do rise to it, and they rise to it enthusiastically. And then what gets exciting is they believe in the mission enough to go and learn other people's jobs, and so. Some of the things that I hear big Air Force talk about, agile combat employment, agile combat support, multi-capable airmen, the irony is I'm pretty sure the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds have been doing that for about 70 years. And um, <laughs> 30, 30 AFSCs in one squadron, for example. Um, that's a lot. And you have to believe in the mission to bring that many people together in a unified way. Yeah, I, don't, I, I always say I don't think you find that type of cohesion and you know, dedication to the mission. Now, granted, we are in a peacetime mission, but I, I think the only other places I've seen is in combat. You see people kind of unify. It's a common objective, common goal. Uh, everyone's working towards it. We get to be a part of that day in and day out. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Are the Blue Angels still housed in the VT-86 hangar at Pensacola? <laughs> yeah, I, that'd be a good trivia question because uh, I don't know how old that hangar is, but uh, again, same thing like uh, like Boss mentioned. Uh, it's 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 an older hangar, uh, but I think we we take a little bit of pride in it, you know, as as kind of one of the the service attributes, you know, the Navy has. A lot of times we don't have the best uh, equipment, maybe not even the best best training that was afforded, you know, due to timelines or, or funding. But you always just find to make it work, and and that's what we keep doing with that hangar. We keep finding a way to make it work, and you know, we're we're constantly walking people back from the idea uh, that the Blue Angels are you know these prima donnas that come in and have these major requests now we, we we have some pretty stringent requests because we're doing this doing this show over 32 cities you know across the united states every year from march to november so we we have very specific standards that we have to execute but um i, I hope that when people have the opportunity to interact with us that they realize that we're, we're anything you know anything other than that than a, that prima donna we're just happy to serve and happy to, to be able to go out and, and showcase what everyone uh, what all our forces are doing. Fizzle, I did get to sneak into your squadron in December. I was in there for about 30 minutes or so, but a testament to that, like if you drive around Pensacola, I mean, there's still buildings that have tarps on them from the hurricane. What was that two, three years ago? Yeah. Um, yeah so, yeah. So still battling that type stuff. Yeah. Walking in there, you're looking at like the, the outside of the building. looks like it might have gotten hit once or twice. 
uh, a little bit, but you can tell again, just the dedication to the professionalism. Yeah, thank you. Now that the it's an awesome base, a lot of heritage, uh, Paco. I, awesome that you came through there. I totally forgot that that, that you would have uh, gone through training there, but uh, it's it's great. Tons of tons of his, history and heritage from World War II. Uh, a great installation at that. Um, it, it definitely has some things that need work, but it's a great base and a great town. We're, we are so fortunate to call Pensacola home. Are you a passionate aviation enthusiast? Then you'll be thrilled to hear about our sponsor, Aircore Aviation. This exciting company has been revolutionizing the aviation industry since 2008, and they have some amazing career opportunities available. More about that in just a minute. Aircore Aviation is at the forefront of airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating all the way back to World War II. Their dedicated team is involved in various aspects of aerospace, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support using state-of-the-art technology. Their exceptional expertise in core manufacturing capabilities like metal forming, CNC machining, and complete aircraft rebuilding has led to the restoration of some award-winning aircraft, such as a couple P-51s, such as P-51 Thunderbird, Twilight Tier, and Sierra Su-2. And if you've been following me for a while, you might remember I was fortunate enough to fly over the Super Bowl in 2018 in Minneapolis. The formation was led by Sierra Su-2 alongside two A-10s and myself in the F-16. So this is a very cool full circle experience. These incredible achievements have captured the attention of aircraft owners, aviation enthusiasts, and the general public alike. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation, then Aircore Aviation is the perfect place for you. They are rapidly expanding their team in 2024 and have job openings in departments such as engineering and CAD, quality assurance, fabrication, and restoration. This is your chance to turn a passion into profession. Aircore Aviation is offering some amazing benefits for full-time positions, including health insurance, PTO, HSA, retirement plans, life insurance, and the extra perk of enjoying Fridays off. If you're ready to be part of a team dedicated to fulfilling the dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com backslash careers today and take the first step towards an exciting career in aviation. Again, that's aircoreaviation.com backslash careers. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity. It's shifting gears. Let's talk a little bit about not necessarily just the flying, but if, when you do, uh, I don't even know how many air shows you guys do a season. How many do you do a season on average? Uh, about about 75 typically. And that that's doubled up, right? So there's Saturday and Sunday at most show sites. So typically we'll travel to the vicinity of 40 different locations. All right. So if the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds, let's say they, they travel to, to put on a performance, a demonstration in 40 different locations a year, there's got to be a process to get people, um, you know, for, for perspective, when a, a fighter squadron goes and travels somewhere, there is a whole spin up. You don't just go and, and land there. It's not what it's a lot more involved than you think. Probably more work than it should be. But you go somewhere, it's you go get all the information. You have someone in the squadron brief, this is the airfield, here's where we're going. And then you get there and then someone else briefs you once you get there, all the same information that you got before. And then you go fly a, what's called an LEO, a local area orientation. So take off land, fly around, check out the airspace, make sure you have the right frequencies. And then after about five or six or seven days, you're all right, now let's actually go do the thing that we actually came here for. I don't think that either of your teams have that luxury and I think you had, Astro, you and I had talked a little bit about the, the, some technology and how to, how do you modernize the way that you chair fly these things because you have different airfields, traffic patterns, field elevations, runway lengths, yep. where show center is and 
all these different variables and then you throw in weather, um, man, there's got to be a lot to, to sort out. Absolutely. So um, I'll start by saying that, you know, your your point about the the typical combat Air Force Advon team, advanced team that goes out for five to six days with multiple people. Um, here's what ours looks like. We have one person that's Thunderbird 8 with his crew chief. He'll jump in an F-16, fly across the country one day before the main push happens. And uh, that's similar this year. So he'll arrive on station and he'll have about 12 hours to prepare the battle space for the arrival of the big team. Here's what that arrival looks like. Seven jets, seven more F-16s. So Thunderbird 137 will fly across the country. We'll refuel usually multiple times. We're typically going east from Las Vegas. So we'll typically lose two to three hours in that journey just in daylight alone. Barely make it onto the ground in time to put the jets to bed. Our C-17 will land. That's got 70 people on it with all of our spare engines, parts, everything that we would need to operate logistically in that new environment. No, by the way, it's never on an Air Force base, right? So... You can forget about back shop support, you know, anything that you need to reach back to, to, to fix jets on the ramp. It's all got to be in that C-17. To include all of the show center equipment, everything required for the audio visuals, and just everything that's required to put on an air show. So that's going to land. It's going to unload overnight. And then the next morning, we're going to fly a seven turn six or a seven turn seven with the seven to eight fighters that we've got on the ramp. It's just astounding. And th- that is, you know, Paco, for your... To answer your question, that is our LAO. The first sortie we do is basically a demonstration, but just with the diamond. And then our second sortie is a full-up Delta practice that these days is being watched by a lot of people because they're starting to sell tickets to those Friday shows, practices. Um, And then we'll fly Saturday, Sunday. Monday, we'll load it all back into the C-17, take all eight, eight jets back across the country to Vegas, land, download, rebuild everything. We'll fly a double turn practice on Tuesday. Wednesday is our day off, our weekend. And then Thursday we do it again. And that's the typical flow from Advon through the end of a show, which is a pretty astounding ask for the team. What I'll tell you is the only reason it's possible is because of the level of authority that the Thunderbirds have, uh, the policies that are in place for Thunderbird 1, for example. So squadron commander on the ops side, I don't have a group commander. I am effectively the maintenance group commander as well of my own maintenance team. So I have all the MXG authorities and I've got actually a significant portion of wing uh, maintenance authorities for waivers, whatever I need to do to get that mission done on the road. And that is just exactly how the Air Force should work because there are a lot of times when I need a part for an EPU and it's just not going to happen. And so Thunderbird level will run it, will run into town. He's the maintenance officer for the team. He'll run into town and literally find like what we call the blacksmiths where you're, you're going to an auto parts shop and trying to cobble together a piece that makes something <laughs> work uh, on the road. It's pretty cool to watch the innovation that comes out of those guys. And that, that happens because we have the authority to just say, go. My last probably five years or so of active duty, one of the big things that I, I've kind of dawned on me is like it's pretty simple like the formula when you align the mission resources and accountability at the same person at the same level magic happens and when you take either one of those away and you give it to someone else or you put it another process or or someone you have to go get permission from that's where it falls apart so you know the buck stops with the commander so astro is a commander so he is accountable for what what is going on but he also has the authority to do it which i think is 
missed on a lot of different military organizations. The Army calls it Mission Command. Uh, the Air Force is starting to embrace that a little bit with agile combat employment. But again, if you delegate those authorities and you have trust and accountability, I think that's a, a big part of the, the equation. And Fizzle, I would assume the Blue Angels are very similar, um, but you don't you don't use a C-17 to move your team around. Do you use the C-130? We do. We have a C-130J, Super Hercules, affectionately known as Fat Albert. Uh, Fat Albert's been uh, a part of our team since the 70s, uh, you know, it just a life of its own, you know, bigger, bigger than life. Uh, one, of, one of the favorite parts of sometimes the show, but its primary mission is logistic support. But uh, yeah, we are uh, fraternal twins in this uh, type of schedule for sure. Uh, some some small differences though. We usually leave uh, our same thing, Blue Angel 7. Uh, we'll depart the day prior to go get everything set up. Has about that same 12 hour window to go get everything straight. Takes off with a, a 7 crew chief, affectionately known as a 7 geek. And they go and they just run everything down. And kind of a cool part about it, I'll, before I kind of go into the schedule piece, I think we both kind of have these contracts. It reminds me of the book Freakonomics. You know, if you remember in there in the, in the 80s, Van Halen would require that all the brown M&Ms, you know, are taken out of the bowl. And it was a way that they could sort of cross-check that the contracts that, that they wrote up for these concert venues that were, you know, pretty rickety old places then, that they could ensure the contract was read and, and being abided to. Now, again, it kind of led that self towards this prima donna type thing of, you know, uh, this hair band is just so needy and, you know, you have to get to this pain of brown <laughs> M&Ms, but it was pretty genius. And we don't really have those Easter eggs hidden in our contract, but you do know when there's certain things that are missing from the things that you've laid out that ensure the safety and, and an effective, fun flight demonstration. If those are missing, it kind of forces you to have a little bit more of a keen eye towards what's going on. So on Thursday morning, we will all load up on Fat Albert. Now, you know, we're loading up and, and taking off about 6 a.m. It's self-contained. We've got 49 people on that and all our support equipment. And then the Delta will take off with six jets after that. We're seven to make six for the flight demonstration. And of note, the Blue Angels have never canceled a show for a maintenance issue. So uh, I think that, yeah, obviously both both teams take a lot of pride in that. And it's, it's something that uh, our maintainers work very hard to make happen because there definitely have to be some creative solutions or long nights to make it happen. And our folks do it every year, every show. That's amazing, by the way. So yeah, it's pretty. For, for those, pretty yeah. <laughs> for those that aren't aware, like a, a normal fighter squadron, like there's there's battle rhythm and ops tempos and things like that. But there is a point where you you push too hard and then the, you know, the machine starts to break down. I'd say probably once a year at least, uh, it is normal for a fighter squadron to just cancel a day of flying because the maintenance backlog is so bad. Maintenance can't generate the jets. More jets are breaking. You don't have the people. And so you're you know, your 12 jets that are available to fly goes to 10, goes to nine, goes to eight, goes to seven. Like, all right, guys, like this, we have to, we have to take a knee and let maintenance catch up. So yeah. that is, I think that speaks a ton to the unit cohesion and teamwork about how you're able to, to balance that both, both on the, you know, the ability to generate aircraft, but the battle rhythm that you can maintain throughout a show season for, and do it over and over and over again. Yeah. And, and you hit it hard, you know, day one, the, the T-Birds are no different. Uh, boss, y'all usually do survey on arrival, right? That's right. Yep. So they'll, they'll survey on arrival. We call it circles and, and arrivals. Uh, we don't do ours on arrivals. There have been years past that they did, but what we'll do is we'll land after our transit, do a quick media availability where we can kind of get out there with the, with the media and, and kind of get the story told for the show, the upcoming show that weekend. And then uh, we will debrief real quick and then we'll brief up for our first uh 
practice performance of the day, go out and do that uh, and, and knock that out, get a, get a quick practice in. And then we'll do the same thing uh, on Friday. We'll, we'll practice Friday morning, uh, do some some high school public outreach type events. And then usually that night there will be a social function that kind of gets us involved with the air show and the local community. You hit Saturday and Sunday, which are your air shows. And, and most of the time, pending the distance, we'll, we'll actually pack up and depart Sunday night and then when we get back home in Pensacola, we we uh, do our debrief, and, that, and that's where we'll kind of nug down on that on the Sunday performance. We we'll always do a debrief after every event, but we'll look into how the flight execution went for that air show for Sunday, so that again we'll get the Blue Angel weekend on Monday day off, and then back to practice Tuesday, back to practice Wednesday, uh, unless it's a show site where we got to get out a little a little earlier. But it's remarkably similar because I, I think this has started to to become public through a couple of things I've seen online recently. But the other thing that blew my mind about the teams is that, um, you know, we talk about flying 12 stories a week. And I think one of the assumptions I had was, well, then, okay, obviously they're not briefing or debriefing, right? It must be just like reps. No, they're full briefs and debriefs. Like I'm talking two hour debriefs, especially in training season to pull apart the lessons from your lines placement, everything that you've got to do to pull this demonstration together. And it, it doesn't let up. So all the way to our last show on November 7th, we're going to be doing a full debrief to make sure that we've got it right. This is exactly why we're recording this now, because <laughs> coordinating this, this podcast was way harder than I thought it was going to be, because as you could tell, like these teams are extremely busy. Uh, so this just happened to just be the perfect time to, to get them both uh, anchored for an hour or two to, to talk. Uh, hey, Rain, have you ever seen Fat Albert take off? I've seen it via video and YouTube, probably like everyone else. My first show season, Fat Albert had just been grounded and they were going to the J transitioning. So I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Fizzle, but Fat Albert, they discovered, uh, turns out like every flight hour the Blues put on it was like putting 10 hours on it. Uh, so it was like, and yeah, so you got like 12 more hours left flying this plane and that's yeah, there's it. There's a pretty so, wild uh, calculation that, that, that goes in, uh, the, you know, the flight hours on aircraft for, for any sort of demo. Uh, we, we quit doing the Jado <laughs> bottles in seven, uh, because those were a holdover, a legacy, you know, from the Vietnam war. So they actually just finally went through them all. Uh, we've got a couple out here in shade tree that we, we use, uh, as markers, a little bit of kind of our history and, and legacy, but, uh, the C-130J actually generates more thrust now than a, a T model did with Jado. Uh, so, you know, wow. tribute to, the, uh, yeah. to the, the horsepower in those engines and with what Lockheed, you know, has done with it. It's, it's pretty amazing. Wow. So the new Fat Albert doesn't have Jado? No Jados. They, they, they don't have the Jado wow. bottles anymore. I did not. I didn't know that. That was a British tail, correct? We did. We acquired it from the, the uh, Ministry of Defense yeah. in, in 2000, uh, 2020. Yeah. A little fun fact. Crossed the pond. Came we back home. Jay's been a great uh, workhorse for us. Since we're talking about aircraft, um, Fizzle, I, I, I don't have to ask you this. Obviously, you've seen Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> the jet that Maverick flies in the movie, you have that jet, don't you? Uh, you know, I don't, I, I do believe that we have the jet. Uh, I thought maybe where you were going with it, um, one of the pilots that flew in it, they did all the low level scenes, the Lawrence of Arabia scene, which is where, you know, you see the sand kick up. They're extremely low. Uh, that was actually one of our, our previous solo pilots. Uh, one of my classmates oh. from the Naval Academy, Frank Weiser, uh, Wallon, he's been kind of going around and, and, and talking about those experiences. And, uh, he's got a great, a great quote, just exhibits everything you'd expect in a fighter pilot where the makeup artist is talking about, uh, putting, they're putting on the 
they had a fake head um, hairline that was Tom Cruise's hairline on his because anytime the camera was looking forward, it needed to look like it was Tom Cruise flying. Now, Tom Cruise was actually in the back. Uh, it was a two-seater. And so the makeup artist is, you know, kind of saying, like, who, so who are you, who are you playing today? And, you know, he looks at the, the makeup artist and says, I, I don't think you understand this correctly. Um, I'm not impersonating anyone. They're impersonating us. <laughs> this is, you know, <laughs> we go out and um, it is like, um, you know, perfect, you know, perfect uh, level of uh, assuredness, we'll say, uh, yeah. But yes, I, I do believe we have, we do have that tail, but uh, it's the same aircraft. And that's one thing that we've been, we've been telling everyone is, you know, this is the same aircraft that if you went out and saw Top Gun 2, that this is, you know, this is a fleet aircraft. It's just painted in these funny, you know, blue and gold colors, but it's the same exact, same exact one. I yeah. thought Fizzle was going to say he hadn't seen it yet. <laughs> yeah, but like, <laughs> stop the recording. <laughs> it's, it's part of the, uh, you know, it's a prerequisite, right? Is it not? <laughs> right, yeah, it's mandatory to sell this item. I saw the uh, I, I saw the the Blue Angels show last last summer. The uh, the Blues on the Beach. That's the first show I've seen with the Super Hornets. Yeah, it's awesome because uh, you converted thirty three percent bigger than a, a a Legacy Hornet. Uh, so it's just a lot of metal up in the sky. Um, it, it's just it's beautiful looking, and I think they are the the teams before us. You know, crafted a great show that we are, are just doing our best to put together a tight show. Pretty, pretty good one. Yeah. So for people who aren't aware, when you say like uh, F-16, F-18, those are actually roughly the same size. They were, came out of the same program back in the 80s. The Super Hornet is like F-22, F-15 size. So it is a massive aircraft. If you put the, if you put a new Blue Angel Super Hornet next to an Air Force Thunderbird, they are massively different in size. They are literally right next to each other right now out there. And out the yeah. window? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Paco, if I may, real quick. Uh, so my grandfather was uh, on the general dynamics design team for the YF-16. Um, and I had the opportunity last year to, to fly with the Thunderbirds. Um, and, you know, getting over there, it was pretty meaningful for me to, to be able to fly in that that jet that my grandfather was was on the original team for. It was just super meaningful to, to get to do that. And they were very gracious to to allow me to get that opportunity and see what it was about. But uh, my grandfather would always tell me uh, about the rollout of that aircraft. And it, when they did it, you know, you, any, like any rollout, you know, there's a lot of a lot of hype for a lot of a lot of just brass in the audience for this rollout with the F-16. And they had a curtain set up and then they had a, a, a tow truck with a, with a you know, the tow tractor and the bar set up with a, a veil coming behind it. So you're expecting that this this air, this wonderful aircraft was going to be rolled out, and uh, so a lot of a lot of hype for it. And the the gentleman gets on the the tow tractor and he's starting it up and it it, it won't start, you know. And so everyone's kind of looking around like, what's going on? And then no sooner than does he kind of get up and walk away and kind of just you know shrug and go, I don't know, that an F-16 comes around the corner and it wasn't even supposed to be taxiing yet at this point in the rollout, and they had that thing already taxiing. And as they're doing it, they, they were pumping the brakes so that it was nodding its head towards the DVs there. Um, so it was a super <laughs> cool story. I felt it was such an honor to be able to uh, to fly in that jet and to be able to sell it to, to these, you know, world-class demonstration team, uh, how meaningful it was to, you know, to me. Fizzle sent me a, an RMO, a copper RMO from that rollout um, after flying with it last year. Oh. It was one of the most meaningful things anyone's ever sent me, brother. That was, it was amazing. Um, it was from his grandfather and you can see that it was from that rollout date. He told me that story. It was awesome. 
Wow. That's incredible. That's, that is incredible. So Fizzle, you've flown in both teams. I did. I think I could scrub a concussion, I, uh, <laughs> you know, flying to the back. Cause I, we actually got to Zorch around for a few minutes and, uh, I was so ratchety with my roles that, you know, Strim's head was hitting the, the canopy. <laughs> like, oh, sorry. I'm going to stop. Those two aircraft fly way different. Uh, one is a lot less aerodynamically stable than the other. <laughs> Rain, I want to kick it over to you. Is there anything that we haven't covered yet? I think a lot of people don't realize the Hornet, if I'm wrong, like you guys manipulate the controls to have a weight. And then boss, is it true? Full nose down right. trim for some maneuvers. Because again, the Viper, you know, the side stick doesn't move. So to have that weight on the stick, can you talk to a little bit about that? And then Fizzle, talk about the how the, the Hornet's manipulated. Yep. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to geek out for a minute here because um, this was really interesting to me. So I had heard the rumor of the nose down trim. And actually, when I was at Air Force Test Pilot School, I was taught about Thunderbird nose down trim. Now, what's interesting is I was taught by the Thunderbirds a different reason for that than I was taught by Air Force Test Pilot School for that full nose down trim. Now, a couple couple things, facts first. Shocking. It's essential. It is essential. Uh, not only do my wingmen do it, but I actually do it as flight lead as well. And those are for some pretty interesting reasons that are, are worth understanding. So when we trim forward, just to give you the physics of it, I am trimming 12 out of 14 clicks down, even as the flight lead. So it's about 90% nose low, which is about negative 1.3 G's in the Viper. So if I were to let go of the stick, it would bunt to negative 1.3. I'm holding approximately 16 pounds of pressure through the entirety of the demonstration. So Fizzle's going to tell you the Blues do the same thing. Every time the Thunderbirds in history have changed aircraft, inevitably it's gone like this. Okay, cool. We got this new airplane. It auto trims. We don't need to do the trim down thing anymore. It's going to work out. It's a magic airplane. Everything's going to be great. And then they fly a terrible demonstration for a while and then reach out to the alumni and say, hey, we can't fly our demo. This airplane's terrible. We need to go back to the old airplane. And everyone says, hey, well, did you try Sherman Ford? And so it's not just a Viper thing. It's a Blue Angels and Thunderbirds and every aircraft throughout history thing. And there are a few reasons for it. Number one, it tightens up all the ligaments in your forearm and your bicep. So there's no free play in the human mannequin system. Um, so you are, you are already locked down so that you are micro pressures, um, from that point forward. So even as flight lead, that matters because when I'm easing out onto a line, if my G changes by 0.1, you have a collision potential between the wingmen. So it has to be absolutely iron statue for these maneuvers, both left and right hand. The second one is you're trimming out of the non-linear band of the F-16 flight control law. So the F-16 has like a buildup phase when you when you pull back on the stick from neutral, from free play to a incremental G build to a finally linear G build. And when you trim full forward, you actually move outside of that nonlinear band and you're just operating in that linear zone on the downside of the, of the stick. That's what test pilot school taught me. And the third one, when you put it all together is where it gets really interesting. So boundary avoidance theory is the is is used widely in the test pilot community is the concept that if i tell you to point straight ahead at a target that you're looking at you're able to do that pretty well as a human being if on the other hand i give you two barriers one on each side and i say just avoid those barriers what's going to happen is you're going to pio you're going to you're going to bounce off the barriers in an increasing oscillation and and react to two different blockades if you will and you're inevitably going to induce a an oscillation that goes exponential 
the reason we trim full forward is because for the wingmen, you only have one barrier now. You are either pulling consciously into position or you are releasing and you are out of position. So it is a conscious, like one way pull into your position or you are releasing you're out of that position. So there's no boundary avoidance PIO tendency with that trim full forward. So I know that was a geeky answer to it, but I think it's pretty cool stuff actually. I would expect so much to it. I would expect nothing <laughs> less from a test pilot graduate for the call sign of Astro. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> but all right, here, here's a follow up before we go to fizzle at the blues. Uh, true or false with the trim wheel back there. Is there any kind of modification to it? Because it is just a wheel that you do with your thumb. I've heard soda straws and all sorts of stuff being taped there, which I don't know if that's true or not. So. <laughs> I, I can actually tell you if you, it's the, the blues attach a physical spring. Oh, I, you're asking me? Yes. Oh, yeah. oh so, no, so I'll, before we go to, before oh, we go to oh, fizzle for, for the Viper. Okay. Yeah. Is there, is there anything that for the trim wheel other than just doing clicks on the stick? Absolutely. So, yep. So we've got a few modifications in the jet to make sure that we can grab those critical switches and, and trim panels without having to look down. It's all on the left side because my throttle hand can move and my stick hand is stuck in trim full forward. So it's always, it's always being used. So we do, we have straws attached to our trim disconnect switch because when you take off in the Viper for that loop on takeoff, if you pull the gear up, the trim will connect itself and it'll automatically neutralize itself to one G. We can't have that happen. So we actually disconnect that trim switch at takeoff and roll it full forward so that we can execute the loop on takeoff. And then right after the takeoff is finished, You'll hear me go left turn, connect trim, connect trim two, three, four, and we'll all reach down and connect that blind. We have the same thing on our ground speed calibrator speed switch um, because that's something that we use pretty pretty frequently in the show. Interesting. Now we know. <laughs> Fizzle, Fizzle, tell us uh, tell us about the uh, the Super Hornet secrets to looking good. Yeah, well, I can tell you a little bit about the the flight control, but I'm gonna give it to you as a naval flight officer that was an econ major that graduated with the two seven five. Now, I gave 2 effort, so that's a 0.8 return on investment, so you're a pretty good hands here. So, uh, awesome. um, so we, you know, we we don't fly with the G-suit, and the reason why, because you got the, the, this stick is, you know, in, in between your legs, and, and the inflating of the G-suit would cause artificial uh, movement that we just can't have. I mean, both teams, extremely tight maneuvers, and, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we call it a fulcrum, so you got your their hand on their leg just kind of fulcruming out on what is effectively a 40 pound spring that's pulling those forward on the stick to give you that artificial feel and and requiring you to have you know back stick pressure on it to even it out. And so that just gives them a, a little bit more sensation with flying, it gives them the nose down effectively trim uh, to, to, to pull in those tight sets, which I believe both teams advertise at 18 inches in our, in our closest formations, which is uh, close when you're, you know, at, at these airspeeds. The nomenclature is important there. For a long time, when we would say 18 inches apart, I think both teams struggle with this. What most combat pilots assume is we mean 18 inches of wingtip clearance. So in other words, most combat pilots will assume, okay, they mean about twice as close as we fly in like calf fingertip, for example, where it's three foot wingtip spacing. Not, not so at all. So we mean 18 inches from canopy glass to fuselage and from wingtips from number two and three underneath uh, Thunderbird or Blue Angel one. And they are not flying off of each other. So for the tightness of positions, for example, when we get into our closest formations, two and three are counting feathers on the inside of the wing to put their nugget on. 
Um, and the, the wingtip overlap is in excess of 12 feet uh, for a 33-foot wingspan. It's very, yeah. very close. Yeah, the simple way that you can kind of, uh, a lot of us uh, will we'll give a, a, an example, illustration when we go and visit, you know, high school or something, always have have the students raise their hand and say, hey, from the top of your head, you know, to your to your fist, that's the separation. If you could roll down your window and you know, roll down your canopy, you could touch the other person's jet. That That's how close we are. That sounds scary. terrible. <laughs> Everything you guys just described. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, like that's, okay. <laughs> yeah, that sounds yeah, yeah, good, yeah, good, yeah. Oh, by the way, two hundred feet off the ground. Yeah, this is, yeah, that sounds great. Let me sign me yeah. up for that. I, I, I've, yeah, I've heard our boss amazing. talk about it. I'm sure it's the same for you. But as we move our sets in with winter training, um, as the wingmen, you know, change their bearing lines and and you know what what position that they're in. Uh, for Diamond 360, for example, one of our tightest maneuvers. Uh, the boss's jet will actually, it'll induce roll just because of the airflow with that other jet being closer. Uh, it just, so it'll, 100%. I have to, changing. I have to actually aim my, our, our version of the Diamond 360 is called the Diamond Per or the Diamond Passive Review. So 180 degrees out from show center, I'm going to roll set a lift vector and call pull set. When I call pull set, my promise to them is I will not move either hand, no matter what, even if we're going to crash straight into the ground. And I actually have to set my velocity vector to crash at show center because when I call pull set, number two slides into position underneath um, my wing and he's he's lined up on the blue stripe inside of my wingtip uh, with his nugget. And that pushes my lift significantly from the left side to where it rolls out. The velocity vector raises about a half a degree and it scoops through show center at about a, a 200 feet. So it is, it is remarkable how much you have to trust each other to, to do the thing that you're, that you're expecting them to do because you're relying on that lift and, and different formation positions are either destabilizing where they'll actually like move my wingtips, like divergently if I crack my wings one way or the other. And then some of our positions are actually stabilizing where it feels like you're cupped and, and you can't miss, you know, like no matter what I'll do with my wings, it'll actually pull you back to neutral stability. It's very interesting. Man. There's so much. There's so much to it. That again, most like Astro, you said in the beginning, your air show in Montana. Most people are like, hey, this you guys are here. This is great, and this is what you've been preparing for. But there's so much that goes into it. And I even jump back to like, you like to, for this listing. Like, if you think parking six, seven, eight jets at a non-military airfield, the taxi flow, like yeah. how are we turning out? Just like something as simple that normally you don't have to think about. You have to think about all those details. <laughs> Try 40 rental cars, you know, <laughs> sailors. And yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Just I that don't want to see the BTO plan for that. <laughs> yeah. Any lieutenant to the ops desk. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that sounds terrifying. <laughs> yeah. We're getting short on time. So uh, I would, I'd like to wrap up with, uh, with one final question for both of you, and then I'll kick it the rain. So what would you say has been your most memorable moment of experience that you've had as a member of the team? And how has that kind of impacted you? Probably wouldn't be a specific instance, but I'm kind of reminded of uh, when I asked a, a former alumni, what was kind of one of the things that they missed most about the job? And without missing a beat, he said, the ability to just do the smallest things on any day, just to, to make someone's, you know, make someone's day, to, to make it that much brighter, to inspire them, uh, to, to give them a little hope. We no doubt get requests from folks that have a, a family member that may be going through some sort of illness, uh, some sort of issue, especially, you know, some child that's battling a disease or, or an illness, the ability to, to send them up a picture to, to help kind of brighten their day and show them that there's hope. 
that by far is the coolest thing about this job. Astro, what about you? So agree with all that. And I have a very specific moment actually that happened last year in Michigan that was, uh, I will never forget this day. So we're driving in, in our police escort for our Saturday's air show uh, in Michigan. And while we're on the way to the airport, there is a fatal accident and Chris Darnell died, uh, shockwaves driver, right at show center, right in front of the crowd. His wife and kids were there. And, you know, I want you to kind of picture this because, you know, we, we drove in that day to fly an air show and, and here's what happened. We arrived at the field and their show is, you know, first decision is, are, are we going to continue with the show at all? This is a, this is a macro decision that somebody's going to make at the air show side, not just Thunderbird side, but so all the teams meet and decide, are we going to fly at all? We decided not to. I was followed quickly by, because I'm Thunderbird one, um, go meet the family who literally just watched their father and, and husband pass away, uh, in, in an accident and, um, and just talk to them. And I had 15 minutes notice for that and then walked into their trailer, um, and, and talked to that family. And it was, um, an unbelievably, um, sobering moment and, and, uh, kind of a realization of, of how dangerous this industry is discussed few things with them, decided to dedicate Sunday's Thunderbird show to Chris, which meant for the rest of that day, here's what happened. So I left that meeting in their trailer. I'm, I met with the Latvian ambassador um, because Michigan is Latvia state and that was on the schedule for a meeting. Then I did multiple interviews with our new team members who were applying to the team. Then I did what's called a Farkle ceremony where we, we uh, honor somebody from the team in front of their family. And if you can imagine like that air show wasn't supposed to be canceled. So their family had traveled from all over the country to witness that ceremony. So that ceremony went on as well. And then we went back into our debrief room at about 1900 and replanned our demonstration to, um, to have a missing man element for Chris Darnell that we executed the next day. When I put all that together, um, that, that went on from about 9am to uh, 9pm that day, that is an experience I will never forget. And it really paints the picture of this Thunderbird one job. It is not about you. You are a uniform. You, you, the human, no one is ever going to know who, who Astro Elliot is, but, um, but this position, you know, whether you've been in the job for 15 minutes or for two years, the expectation when something goes wrong is that you take the lead in, in that air show community and, um, and make all those things happen in, in a single day, sometimes with no notice. It's astounding. I was going to piggyback on that because Chris was a good buddy of mine, a phenomenal friend, a human being, father, a husband. And I would say, you know, boss, the, the piece that informal, which I'm sure I know you, you were exposed to and saw it, but there is a video that's out there of you speaking on Sunday, yes. I think after the performance, talking about some of the significance, which is pretty powerful. I think Rick Peterson put that together. But uh, I know one aspect that you guys did was putting Chris's name uh, on the jet, which, as you talked about earlier, it's not like you guys had the back shop there in Michigan. So it was a team effort to go figure out how to scrape together off the jets in town to be able to put his name on the jet. And then could you could you do you mind re uh, recalling that something of the significance of him flying with you guys? on that because for me it's powerful yeah, again chris is a good buddy of mine no, that's, so that's um, uh, uh thanks for mentioning that i did not know that video was out there and i do remember that ceremony it was sunday right after landing um from that from that demo with the missing man 
um, it was important to us that he flew um, in the wheel well. That's where we put our fallen warriors. Um, you know, we'll, we'll do those ceremonies on occasion uh, in different hometowns. And typically we know that there's going to be a fallen warrior. So we have those letters already pre-printed. We can put those in the wheel well. We, um, and this, our maintenance team, they're incredible human beings. They, they literally went and peeled individual letters off of the aircraft that we had um, to create Chris Darnell's name uh, in the wheel well so that when we take off, you know, the gear comes up, it folds into the heart of the aircraft. It's what we call it. And that's, that's where we fly our fallen warriors. Um, and then, you know, to, to your point, rain, I did, like I said, I didn't know the video was out there, but here's how that went. I landed, parked, um, did a show shutdown, saluted off. And then a cluster of, I want to estimate about 80 to hundred people surrounded the jet, um, to see his name and, it became an impromptu fallen warrior ceremony for Chris. And, um, one of the most meaningful times of my life. Uh, thanks for doing that. I know that was, uh, meant a lot to the family. Um, particularly it's something that, you know, we're going through literally the worst time in your life to have someone take the time and the effort to, to honor his legacy. It's huge. Man. Well, you can't top that. Yeah, man. It's yeah. Rain, you, mic drop. Yeah, mic drop. Uh, <laughs> Rain, you want to you want to do the outro? Yeah, sure. No, I, it's uh, again. I think it's a it's a it's a really powerful way uh, to end this because that I mean that parallels through all our services and our time. You know, uh, it's all about the the people you serve with, and uh, we all yeah. There there's highs and there's lows, but that is a testament I think to one the community that we're a part of and it's specifically now if you're talking air shows what you do but i know both of you are incredibly busy and it's not going to get uh, any easier here for fizzle i might see it's sun in front of you around uh so hopefully yep. get a high five you in person there uh but thank you for taking the time that today again this is your one day off we've now consumed you know half your day between the setup and now the recording of this uh so hopefully you get a little little downtime and then right back into it tomorrow so again Thank you for taking the time to do this. Paco, thanks for, uh, dare I say, hurting the cats and making this all happen. Uh, it is not an easy challenge to align for busy schedule. So thanks for doing that as well. I, w- I couldn't have imagined this episode going any better than it did. Well, like the, yeah. the, 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 I think the listeners are going to really enjoy it. I, I enjoyed it. So thank, thank you, you both for your time. And thanks, Rain, for helping out. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarren.com slash rain.